There we go. I was muted. Thank you. How many of you were not here yesterday? Where were you guys? Good thing Jesus didn't come back. You'd be reading those books left behind. (laughs) We had a... Yeah, I'm sorry for watching the clock. I just was trying to honor the time. Bishop, he left. (laughs) Now it goes as long as I want. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, we've been having a great time. What a... A uh, great word Bill brought to us last night, and really timely, and it's amazing. I've, I've uh, been with Bill for 32 years, and I've heard a lot of the same messages. You know, we, we preach a lot of the same things that the Lord's given us, because it's basically uh, one of our core values is that um, we don't teach to, to learn. I mean, we don't teach to preach. We uh, and teach. We, we preach to learn, you know. I mean, we teach. What am I trying to say? We don't study... We don't study to teach. We study to learn. And so we just have one message. It just has 500 points. And, and so we just take a piece of our life and just break it off and give it to you. And God's been so good to us. We've, we've seen God just move powerfully um, among our people in our own family. And it's, you know, what's powerful, what's, what's humbling is when you see God do something that's so big that you know you can't take credit for it. No, no person can take credit for it. And I, I love miracles. <clears throat> the only thing I hate about them is when you need them. <laughs> How many of you have ever prayed to, to walk in wonders and signs and miracles, and then the next thing that happens is you need one in your life? And then you're like, oh God... What's going on in my life? And God's all, I thought you wanted to walk in miracles. I'm like, I meant for other people. I meant I wanted to help other people get a miracle. And uh, Bill was talking about last night how we get a prophetic word and then the next thing that happens is uh, a circumstance of the opposite of of the word that we get. And I was thinking about so much like Joseph, you know, that, that, that he gets prophesied over that he's, he gets this dream that he's going to be a ruler. Next thing you know, he's in prison. And one of the things I notice is that between the promise and the palace is always the process. And the process gets you ready for the palace. And, you know, if you figure out some way to get around the process, you can't stay in the palace. That's the problem, isn't it? Um, that's, what, that's the problem with self-promotion is that you can get there, but you can't stay there. And uh, so, yeah, that's really good. And, it's not good if you can't stay there. I mean, the process is good. It's just sometimes it doesn't seem to be fun. I, I don't know why I'm sharing any of this right now. I just I feel like some of you, some of us are in this uh, process where it feels like the valley of the shadow of death. But it's, it's just a shadow. It's not the real thing. Jesus promised us abundant life. And, and so if you're going through that season, just remember this too shall pass. It came to pass. <laughs> Some things in our life come to pass. And uh, I, I don't remember if it was Joseph uh, Bishop who said this, but um, some, one, of, one of the people we had with us in the last year or so said, it's, it's amazing how long God takes to, to act suddenly. 
we look at people's lives and we're like, man, they, they grew so fast overnight. But underneath the, the soil of, of their life was this whole root system being built that just took decades. And suddenly the Lord opens the door and, you know, we, we hear about them, we, we see them. And what we don't realize is that, that behind that suddenly was many years of, of um, process, if you will. And so anyway, I don't know why I'm saying all that except for I feel like that's for probably all of us in some time, some season of our life. Um, and it's a, it is honestly a real privilege to be here. I've prayed about being here for a while. Um, I want to give away a couple things. Um, this is called Spirit Wars. And it's, um, I think it's, it's a two-message series that I did um, on Sunday morning in our church. You know, the Bible says, Ephesians 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And I don't know why we have this deal that we're still not convinced that we're actually a new creation. That when we were born again, 2 Corinthians 5.17, we actually became a whole new creation. Not just a new spirit, but we became a whole new creation. And actually, there is a river that runs through our soul that runs towards the throne. If you don't paddle, you'll end up at God's house. When you received Jesus, you became a saint. If you believe you're a sinner, you'll sin by faith. So you have to be a human being before you can be a human doing. And the thing is, is that you'll always reproduce the environment around you that you believe that you have within you. And so there's a lot of people that are just not convinced that God really changed their nature. And so they think that they're in a battle with their old man. And I propose to you that uh, Romans 7, where Paul talks about his struggle, that he's not talking about his current struggle. He's talking about his struggle as a Pharisee, that the law taught him all the right things to do, but he gave him no power to do it. And that became a bondage. The truth is, is that we're in a struggle, but it's not against flesh and blood. That you're not in a struggle with your old man. And here, here, here is the biggest, the biggest deception, is that when you think that you're fighting your old man, you can't possibly win the battle because you're fighting the wrong enemy. When you got baptized, you died. Dead people don't sin. <laughs> See, we enter the baptismal tank with the cross, but we exit with the crown. Because it says, as he is, so are we, in, not as he was, but as he is, so are we in this world. And so it's important for us to realize how spiritual warfare actually happens in our life. And one of the, the main ways, 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm sorry, uh, 2 Corinthians 10 says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely for, powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Then it lists three dimensions of fortresses. Thoughts, speculations, and lofty things. Now, not every thought is a spirit, but a thought that is a spirit, you know it because it has an unction behind it. And what happens is, is the enemy will give you a thought. For instance, he'll tell you, you know, he'll, he'll give you a thought like, like he'll give you an evil thought, and then it comes with an unction to do it. Because it's actually, the thought is actually a spirit. And then, and then he'll accuse you of having it. And then if you believe it, you empower a thought. 
Here, here's a, a survey I've been doing for about a year and a half. How many of you have ever been driving down the road, minding your own business, and out of the blue you have a thought that you should crash your car into something and kill yourself? How many of you have had that, ever had it? And the thought is so strong, you almost have to hold on the steering wheel with two hands. How many of you have ever had that unction before? Yeah, it's, it's, it's about 60% everywhere I go. That, that's, ex- that's a spirit war. The enemy gives you a thought, and then he accuses you of having it. And then if you believe it, then you spend all your time fighting somebody who's already dead. And you can't win a war like that. So I think it's really important that we realize that, you know, we don't, we don't emphasize warfare a lot in our culture. But there are seasons. Now, if your whole life is warfare, I'd say there's something wrong. But it is normal to have seasons of struggle, our struggle. But I, I love that it's in the book of Ephesians because... Paul writes that God put everything under our feet in chapter 1. And in chapter, in chapter 6, he says, our struggle. <laughs> I love that that's in the same book. You know, because he said, because in chapter, in chapter 1, he says, we're seated in heavenly places with Christ. In chapter 3, he says that we're, we're called to walk in a heavenly calling. So we're seated, we walk. But then the, the, the hard times is when you've done everything to stand, just stand. <laughs> I love the seated times and the walking times, but the times when you just stand, when you're doing everything just to stand. How many of you don't like those times very much? So, would anyone like this? Good. Is anyone demonically oppressed so badly that demons are taking over your body? Come get this. <laughs> just teasing. No, no, I was joking. Please, you can come have. And uh, this is a book I wrote called Sexual Revolution. It's about a sexual revolution. How many of you know when God said, be fruitful and multiply, He gave you a sex drive? Okay, how many of you don't believe that? Where do you, where'd you get yours from? The question is, what does it mean to have a sex drive? See, the struggle's in the definition. I think it means that you want to have sex with somebody. If you have a different one, email me. I'd like to hear it. <laughs> See, the challenge is, is that when you hit puberty in most Christian circles, you're supposed to pretend that isn't happening. And I think that God's trying to teach us how to manage our appetites, not get rid of them. Why do you, why do you have a sex drive years before God wants you to have sex inside of covenant? Have you ever thought of that? It's like torture. So that on your honeymoon night, when you lay with your lover, you'll have something to give them that you had to fight to keep. Because the value of your virginity is in the blood, sweat, and tears it takes to get it from the battlefield all the way to the honeymoon suite. See, anyone can give away something expensive, but only people who understand sacrifice can give away something valuable. You know, in, um, in, in, in America, we have the talk. You know the talk? Like when your kids wake up one morning and they got all their equipment? Better have the talk. But in the Bible, they didn't have a talk. They had a, they had a culture. They had a healthy sexual culture. You know, when they got married, you know this, they, like weddings lasted a week. That's why Jesus made gallons of wine instead of pints. Well, plus he brought his disciples.
And, and they, would, they would exchange vows in weddings. They'd exchange vows much like we did. And there would be no celebration yet. Then they would go into the honeymoon, they would go into the bridal chamber, which is most often a curtained room, and they would consummate the marriage. You know, consummate the marriage? And they would take the sheet that should have blood on it, and they would throw it over the bridal chamber wall, and then the celebration would begin. Now, this wasn't X rated. There would be little children there, all the way to, you know, old people. And you can imagine when Johnny sees, you know, just three-year-old sees the bloody sheet thrown over the bridal chamber wall, like, holy, got in a fight already. (laughs) And that became a talking point so that children, from the time they were, you can understand, from the time they were little, they were being exposed to the fact that the celebration began. See, the celebration was over covenant. That's why God gave woman a hymen, because God wanted children be conceived out of covenant so he provided the blood and what they learned from the time they were little wasn't dirty it wasn't hidden that's why the bible has you know song of solomon in it and all i mean god's god was god's not the one that's hiding sex it's religion and so sexuality was celebrated inside of covenant and children got exposed to that from the time they were little so there wasn't a talk, there was a culture. They grew up knowing that there was going to be, there was a, there was a celebration coming. When they, when they kept their virginity for their lover, it would be celebrated. And I think we need a revolution. So anyway, uh, Ahmad uh, Gibbons um, actually endorsed the back of this book. Ahmad Gibbons was a... Uh, star of this VH1 show, Real Chance at Love 2. And so I get an email every once in a while. Ahmad is an African-American guy who struggled with his virginity. And uh, he read this book and said it changed his life. So some people are like, why did you put Ahmad on the back of your book when he obviously struggles? Because I wrote this book for people who struggled. And I thought that maybe they might take a reference from a guy who struggled rather than a 55-year-old white guy who's been married for 35 years. It's just a thought. It's strategic marketing. Would anyone, if you have a real struggle with your sex drive, would you just... You do not have a trouble with your sex drive. Do not. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> oh. I did so good, I caught myself. My wife is usually on the front row, you know? She's like, you know, Holy Spirit, wife, same thing. I'm not saying my wife is part of the Trinity. I'm just saying, if there was a foursome, she'd be in there, right there. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yesterday, <laughs> I didn't mean that irreverently. It meant it came out that way. <laughs> she usually coaches me. She travels with me, and I start talking. She knows what I'm going to say before I say it. And I'll be like, she'll be like, 
it's always, I feel a little insecure when she's not here because I'm not sure what the Holy Spirit's saying. <laughs> so, okay. Um, I, I feel like the Lord has given me a message for the church in, in, uh, globally, in, in general. And I'm sure there's uh, some specific things that the Lord's given me for you, but... Um, yesterday I shared that I believe that we're in the second greatest transition in human history. The first uh, greatest transition was the cross, but I believe that we're in the second greatest transition in human history. And we cited a couple of uh, transitional passages like Isaiah 42.9 where he says, The former things have come to pass, and behold, I proclaim new things to you, sing to the Lord a new song. And I began to talk about some of the transitions that I see. And, you know, the sons of Issachar... Um, they understood the times. Part one, they understood the times. And part two is they understood what to do in the times. And uh, I feel like the, 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 the wisdom of the sons of Issachar needs to come on the church for this transition. You know, I, just, um, on, uh, I, I travel and speak a lot to leaders. And one of the things that I've observed is it's easy, it's not easy, but it's easy to, uh, easier in a sense to lead on this side of the river or on this side of the river, but it's very difficult for a leader who's on this side of the river to actually take people through transition. Moses couldn't do it. He tried, he died trying. And what I find is it's really, it's really difficult to lead in transition. Because, uh, and I'm just being practical for a minute. And it's very difficult to have what you used to do not work anymore or for God to be emphasizing something different. Uh, somebody once said you can always tell the age of a person by the amount of pain it takes, the amount of pain they encounter when they, when they hear of a new idea. And so, you know, it's important for us as leaders, those of us that are leaders, and I think we're all leaders in some dimension, to really realize that God is, um, he, he only pours new wine into new wineskins. A new being current and flexible. And you know, it's, uh, Bill quoted this verse. Uh, Jesus said, I can't, a man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He didn't say precedes, he said proceeds. It's not what God said, but what God's saying that's bread to our soul. And it's important that we realize that because, for instance, when Abraham was told by God to take Isaac up to the mountain and sacrifice him, he had a proceeding word from God. But by the time he got to the top of the mountain, there was a new word, don't sacrifice Isaac. If, I, if Abraham wasn't current with God, Isaac be dead. And so I wonder how many of our promises get sacrificed because we heard but we're not hearing. It's important that we stay current with God. So what God said yesterday is great for yesterday, but it may not be it may not be it may not be bread to our souls for today. And um, do you you understand what I'm saying? And so uh, I I think there there are uh, there are emphasis in 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 different seasons and different times. And I think that um, I got a letter the other day. I, I'm mostly honestly I mostly get good emails. I get lots of them. Um, because of our books and all that kind of stuff, I get lots of emails every day. And, everyone's, and, and even the ones that are negative, mostly I think come from a good heart. Like someone saying, I heard you teach this, here's the other side of it. And I think that all scripture lies in tension. For instance, Jesus said, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't be my disciple. 
And then later on he says, if you honor your mother and father, and he, and he rebukes the Pharisees, and he says, you call everything Corbin, you give everything to God, and you don't keep anything back for your mother and father, and you broke the commandment of honor your mother and father, and you'll have life. And so, like, do I honor them, do I hate them? You know, and what I'm getting at is that all truth lies in tension, and you really don't know what to do unless you have the Holy Spirit, because the Bible is written in an intentional paradox. And, and so it's important that we stay current with God so we know what scriptures to emphasize in what season. See, I, I think, I think mm-hmm, I'll say it like this. I think a lot of truth lies behind the doors of heresy because the scriptures are not necessarily, not, uh, I mean, the truths are not necessarily wrong. They're just overemphasized or misapplied. And, and I think that truth has seasons. And I think there are times when God's whispering some things and shouting others. And there are other times when God is shouting something that He was whispering. And it's important for us to be current with what God is, is emphasizing. Does that make sense? And, um, and so, you know, oftentimes when I, when, you know, when I teach, somebody uh, will, will share, uh, like they'll write me an email. I got an email the other day. I started to tell you. A two or three page email. It was very kind, but the guy says, you know, you don't talk about suffering. You know, you, you, everything, you think the whole world is awesome and it, but, you know, you think everything always is supposed to go well and, you know, you can kind of get the feel for what he was saying and, and, um, and, and he, you know, he, he wrote me page after page of, you know, he pasted in all the scriptures he can find on suffering. And, um, and I referenced to the fact, I referenced him to the fact that I taught on suffering two weeks in a row a few months ago on Sunday morning, but it's not something I teach every week because, um, I lived it. So I thought, I did that already pretty well. And now I'm emphasizing happy. Because I realized that, you know, serious isn't a fruit of the Spirit. And, um, suffering is. The kingdom of God is not eat or drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and suffering. So I, and actually, it was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. It didn't, he didn't enjoy it. He endured it. So I thought, I thought that it would be more appropriate to emphasize what he was after instead of the process he went through. That's just what I'm thinking. So um, anyway, I, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit more about um, this process, this this transition that I think we're going through, and um, the uh, the Lord uh, gave me this word about uh, I don't know I'm really bad at time. Don't ever believe anything I say about time. I was talking, I was saying, uh, I was telling a story. Oh, this is about a year ago, and the, maybe maybe it was three years ago. <laughs> I said yeah, about about five years ago, and I was telling a story. My wife. After, the, after I shared, she comes up and she said, that was 22 years ago. I'm like, seriously? Wow, seems like yesterday. But anyway, a while, a while ago, the Lord said to me, the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because they have emerged in a pastorate. The modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because they have emerged in a pastorate. And so, um, uh, so I started going through the season where the Lord started sharing all this stuff with me. And if you'll turn to uh, John chapter 
um, something. Uh, chapter 5. It's the story of the Pool of Bethesda, and you know it well. And I just want to take a few pieces of that and, and tell you about a transition that I feel like we're going through. Verse 2 says, Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there was a pool, which is in Hebrew is called Bethesda, which has five porticles. Everybody say, five porticles. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, lame, blind, withered, and they were waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down in certain seasons. Everybody say certain seasons. And they went in, he went into the pool and stirred up the water. And whoever first, after the stirring of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease which they were afflicted. And we'll just stop right there. And so um, a, a, a while back, this is probably three years ago, I was reading that passage, and you know, Bill talked about this, uh, I think it was last night, how certain passages just pop out at you, and you don't know what they mean, but they're like, I have wept over passages that I don't even know what they mean at all. And I, I, I can remember for probably four years that passage in the, um, about Noah where it says, and God, uh, uh, God looked out and he saw that men, all men were evil and and I mean, that passage, I just, I wept over that passage every time I read it for probably three or four years that God didn't find anybody righteous. And then, of course, the Noah is the next verse. But um, I, 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 I was reading the book of John and I'd get to this story in the pool of Bethesda. And we've preached a lot on the pool of Bethesda. And we have a, a pool at our, uh, in our, at our church that we call the pool of Bethesda People get in, get healed. It's a real sign of, of God's miracle-working power. And, but anyway, I was reading this passage some time ago, and I'm reading about the Pool of Bethesda, and I noticed that what jumps out at me, which seems strange, is that the Pool of Bethesda have five porticles. And I don't know why, but that just jumps out at me. And I, I was thinking about John is the one, John is the apostle who said, if all the things that Jesus did were written down, the, the earth could, itself could not hold the book. So I'm reading that one day and I'm thinking, you know, it's odd that he mentions that the pool had five porticles because he mentions no other details about the pool. And if John actually shrunk down everything that, if he took everything that he saw Jesus do and he shrunk it down to just a few, you know, paragraphs, so to speak, a few pages, then he must have thought that, the, that mentioning that it had five porticles was somehow important. Are, you, do you, am I making any sense? So, you know, so I'm reading that passage, and it, it kind of like came to me like, can you imagine if you saw a car accident, and you, the, you were the witness, and the police officer came up to you and said, did you see this accident? Yes, I did. I saw these two cars, and they, they hit head on, and, they, and both of them had hubcaps. You would be like, Okay, hubcaps must have something to do with the accident because there's so many more details. Why would you mention the hubcaps? Are you with me? So one day I'm reading that passage and the five porticles keeps popping out to me like over a period of a month or two. And finally I'm reading that and I'm like, wow, there's something to this. And as I began to just pray over it, one day I'm actually working in my wood shop and the Lord said, you know why that pool had five porticles? I said, no. He says, because it's a prophetic metaphor for the fivefold ministry. And, and he said, when the fivefold ministry goes from emerging, how many of you know that we had threefold ministry for many years, and now we have the, the apostles and prophets? He said, when the fivefold ministry goes from emerging to merging into one pool, it's going to create strategic alliances with heavenly allies, and we're going to get heavenly help. 
So the Lord began to talk to me about the fact that the fivefold ministry is no longer just emerging, it's merging. Like the Lord is teaching us the roles of the fivefold ministers and how they flow together into one pool so that people can get healed and angels help us. And I was teaching that for several months. And then one Sunday morning, we were praying um, like we do uh, before the services. We kind of get together and share, you know, share testimonies and what God's, we feel like God's doing for the day. And then we, and then we kind of gather in a circle and pray. And we were doing that. And I was, it was coming my turn. I knew it was my, coming my turn. Everybody knew it was my turn because in our culture, if it's your turn, to pray, you, you start to shamba louder than everyone else, and then everybody knows it's your turn. So we're praying, I'm like, you know, the person next to me is praying, I'm letting them know I'm praying next, because I'm like, shamba da ya da 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 It's like, that means I'm going next. So, so I, so, and I'm, I'm about to pray for Sunday morning, I'm going to pray that the Bethel Church is going to be like the pool of Bethesda, that people are going to Get in the pool and they're going to get healed. They're going to get delivered. They're going to get saved. And so I'm just about to pray that prayer. And, it get, and I think it was Teresa Debbin was praying right before me. And she's praying. And you know how you kind of assemble your thought. You don't have to do that when you're alive yourself. But you don't, when you're a pastor, you don't want to have a stupid prayer. <laughs> you want to sound intelligent. So, so I'm, I'm getting ready to pray. I'm kind of assembling my thoughts. And as she, as she begins to stop, I'm just about to pray. I pray that this morning would be like the pool of Bethesda. So I get to this place and, I, and she, she's, she stops and I, I'm going. And I go, I pray that this morning, and I'm about to say, would be like the pool of Bethesda. But as soon as I say, would be like, the Holy Spirit says, that's an old word. That's an old word. And I say, now this is all happening in milliseconds. I say, how could that be an old word? You just gave it to me six months ago. I haven't even got the CD series out on it yet. (laughs) And the Lord said, it's an old word. I said, okay, what's the new word? This is all happening this fast. I said, what's the new word? He said, the church is like Ezekiel's river. Now, okay, I'll just be totally honest with you. I hadn't read Ezekiel in years. Now, I knew there was a river in there. I don't want to be totally... Like, I knew there was a river, and I knew it had something to do with trees. <laughs> now, everyone's waiting, right? Because when you go, I pray that today would be like... You can't stay that way for too long, because in our culture, they're like, Holy Spirit hit him, and he's... <laughs> Got the editor, Maria, you know, Wordworth, editor anointing us. So... And, so, I mean, it was just like that fast of a pause, but all this is going on in my mind. So I go, I pray that, the, that this morning that Bethel Church would be like Ezekiel's River. And I'm thinking, I don't know a thing about Ezekiel's River. I pray that this morning would be like Ezekiel's River. And if you don't know anything, you just repeat it with more emphasis. So I pray that this morning would be like Ezekiel's river. And I'm thinking as quickly as I can, like, I know there's trees. Yeah, like the river in Ezekiel. Where the trees, the trees are in the river in Ezekiel. So this morning, let Ezekiel's river run 
through Bethel Church. Amen. And I leave and I'm like, I better read the passage, you know. Because I know, I know there's something about the river, Ezekiel's river. So I, I look up the passage when I get home that day. <laughs> Sorry. I oh, know you should read the whole Bible every year. You won't have these issues. And, uh, and, and we're going to read it in a minute. But before I do, I, I, I want you to see something. Like, I want you to see that the Lord began to, to talk to me about the fact that Ezekiel's river and the pool of Bethesda actually represented two types of government. Now, this is going to get a little bit complicated, but the Lord told me that I had confused governors with government. He said, you're calling the fivefold ministry the government of God. They're the governors of God. And he said, government is the structure that governors govern in, and, and uh, leadership is the art of governing. He started all over. He said, government is, the gov- government is the structure that governors govern in, and leadership is the art of governing. Now, just to give you an example, in our city, they built a college called Shasta College, and they, uh, the contractor put no sidewalks in, he planted lawn all the way around the, the campus, and then he waited for a year, and at the end of the year, he, he, he looked where the lawn was wore out, and where the lawn was wore out, he poured the sidewalks, so that the sidewalks facilitated the destiny of the faculty and the students. Can you get a picture like that's government? In our country, in America, we have, um, we have a, a president who's also commander-in-chief. This is very interesting. Probably because our first president was George Washington. It's also our greatest, our greatest general. And so our, you know the story. Our, um, in America, our government... Our forefathers did not want a monarchy. In fact, if you read history, they wanted to make George Washington king, and he refused to be king. And so we developed this you know, democratic republic. And for the sake of, I know it's more complicated than this, but for the sake of uh, illustration, basically we have a democracy where we have, we have power by, by the majority. And, and um, our forefathers were really insightful. They said democracy works great in a time of peace. But in a time of war, if we're ever attacked on our own home shores, democracy works too slow to win a war on our own shores. So they put something in called martial law. Now, in martial law, the same governor remains in office. In other words, our president, who's also our commander-in-chief, you follow me? The president, who's also commander-in-chief, remains in office. What, what changes? The government. The structure changes to empower the military side and disempower democracy. Now, we could have the greatest general in, in American history as President of the United States, but if we didn't have martial law, the very structure would keep him or her from winning a battle on our own shores. Because, are you with me? Because... Because government is supposed to empower your strength and cover your weakness. Uh, You've you, you got to get this part because about what I'm about to say. Okay, 
Now, remember I said that the modern world has never... Are you guys aboard? The modern world has never seen the power of a true apostle because they have, because they have emerged in a pastorate. Okay, a pastorate is a form of government that pastors pastor in. Pastor is the governor. Pastorate is the government. Apostleships are the form of government that apostles lead in. Are you with me? Okay, now, just for a quick definition, what is an apostle? I have people come and they're like, we have an apostolic network. I'm like, really? Who's the apostle? We don't have an apostle. How do you have an apostolic network without an apostle? I mean, why not just call it a network? I mean, there's a, there's a buzzword, and I think it's important that we realize that in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not. So it's kind of important that we know who they are. I've had other people come up to me and say, I, I, I'm an apostle. I go, what's an apostle? And they go, well, apostle is a father. I say, well, are all fathers apostles? They're like, well, no. So I say, okay, so... So all, all apostles are fathers, but not all, fa- not all fathers are apostles. So what makes an apostle an apostle? Well, I don't know. So how do you know you are one then? And so uh, just a, a little bit like the definition of the word, the Greeks came up with the word apostle. The, the Romans are the ones who kind of made it famous. And, and what happens is, you know, the Romans were very, they were very aggressive people like Hitler. And they were conquering land. And what they'd find, for instance, like they'd conquer a city, then they'd go on to another city, then they'd go on to another city. And when they came back, let's say, to the first city they conquered, what they found is that the people were back to their old ways. And when you're in Rome, you're supposed to do as the Romans do. You know, they even know that saying in Africa. See, that saying came out of that era. When you're in Rome, you do as the Romans do. So the Romans said, listen, why are we conquering land, but we're not culturizing people? So they developed these envoys, and the head of those envoys were, were some of their generals. They would put as head of the envoys. And what they do is, is that those envoys would go out with military, of course, and they would conquer those cities. But as they conquered the cities with the envoys were teachers and philosophers and, and people who would culturize, the, there would be officials who would culturize the people as they conquered land. Those people who led those envoys were called apostles. And the goal, the word apostle, of course, means sent one, but it means to be sent from, it means to be sent to a place to reproduce what you were sent from. And then Jesus gives the disciples, the disciples are always asking, please teach us to pray, teach us to pray. And you know, there's only one recorded prayer that Jesus taught them to pray, which we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, do you realize that's an apostolic prayer? That your prayer is you're sitting in heavenly places and your job is to apostle. Your job is to take heaven and bring it to earth. And so he said, it's interesting because he doesn't, when he promotes his, his learners to leaders, you know, disciples, learners, when he promotes learners to leaders, it's interesting that he doesn't call them, he could have, you know, he could have called them priests because there was a priestly order. He couldn't call them prophets. There was the sons of the prophets. There was 12 of them. He could have called them patriarchs. But he calls them apostles. He uses a secular Roman word. And he says, you are my apostles. 
In other words, you know those guys who are always, remember the Romans were, rule, uh, were ruling the Jews? You know those guys who are always trying to get us to act like Romans? Yeah. You are my apostles. Are you with me? So the point is, is that the apostles are lots of different, there's different dimensions on apostles, but it, apostles are people that culturize cities. If you're not transforming cultures, you're not apostolic. In other words, you can plant 500, you can plant 500 churches, and I mean they're good, don't misunderstand me. If you're a church planter and you plant 500 churches, I'm not saying that that isn't good. But if those churches don't transform that city, they're not apostolic. Because the word apostle is synonymous with cultural transformation. Are you with me now? Okay, now let's go back to Ezekiel's River. How are we doing for time? Ezekiel's River, chapter 47. Are you there? Ezekiel 47. And it says, He brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house towards the east. For the house faced the east, and the water was flowing from down under. That's around Australia. From the right side of the house, from the side of the altar, from the south side of the altar. And he brought me by the way of the north gate, and he led me around the outside of the outer gate by the way of the gate faced the east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out towards the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. And again he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, water reaching the knees. And again he measured a thousand, he led me through the water, water reaching the loins. And again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that no one could ford, for the water had risen. Everybody said the water had risen. Enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now when I returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were, there were very many trees on one side and on the other. And he said to me, These waters go down from the eastern re region, they go down to Abarth, and they go towards the sea, being made to flow into the sea. The waters of the sea become fresh. The word fresh there is the word healed. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. Everybody say, will live. And there will be many fish, for these waters go there and others become fresh so that everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from these places, and they will go from the place of the spreading of the nets, and, the, and their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, many, um, sorry, very many. But its swamps and marshes, everybody say swamps and marshes, will not become fresh, they will be left for salt. But by the river, on its banks, on one side and on the other, will grow Every kind of tree for food, their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because the water flows from the sanctuary. Everybody say, the water flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Okay, now, I want you to see something. Did you notice that he goes a thousand cubits from the sanctuary and he's got water to his ankles? 2,000 to his knees, 3,000 to his loins. And then it becomes a, wa a river that no one could ford, for the water had risen. Two things I want you to notice. 
that the further he got from the sanctuary, the deeper the river was. You got to get this. Okay, now, the pool of Bethesda, people came to the pool to get healed. And the, in certain seasons, the angel would stir the water and the first person in would get healed. Okay, pastors, I want to propose to you that the pool of Bethesda is a great metaphor for a pastorate. Pastors gather, but apostles send. Ezekiel's river is a great metaphor for apostleships because apostles send pastors gather see in the pool bethesda if you want to get healed you have to come to the pool and let's just say you want to get you you need you need deliverance you come to church you need counseling you come to church you want to learn the bible you come to church and the goal is on coming to church but the word apostle means sent and the goal is to, is to train, equip, and deploy. So did you notice that in the, in the Ezekiel's river, the further you got from the sanctuary, the, the further you get from the church, the greater their miracles are. And the goal is no longer coming to church, but becoming the church. And I want to I propose to you that we're going through this transition that, that Sunday mornings, for instance, as an example, they're no longer places where people gather so they can get touched, but they become Holy Spirit terrorist training centers where people get trained and equipped. They hear the apostolic message and they get commissioned and deployed. That the whole emphasis, see, the whole emphasis on... on, on, on on what you do when you come to church is completely being transformed because the greatest miracles, the greatest manifestations of the kingdom are to be happening in the marketplace. And people are no longer coming to church so they can get healed. They're coming to church so they can get equipped, so they can go out to places where people will never come so that they can extend the kingdom. See, part of the struggle is Jesus said, I will build the church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Then he said 127 times, you extend the kingdom. Everywhere you go, preach the kingdom, pray for the sick, raise the dead, say the kingdom's come near you. We have been taught that we're supposed to extend the kingdom. But what we do is we build the church and wonder who in the heck's extending the kingdom. We've confused the roles. We've, we've swapped seats with Jesus. He said, I will build the church, you extend the kingdom. We build the church and wonder who's extending the kingdom. And I believe that we're coming into this new era. And see what's, the, and the Lord said, the, the modern world has never seen the true power of an apostle because apostles, okay, now follow me, have emerged in a pastorate. What is a pastorate? It's a form of government that's designed around gathering. But apostles don't gather, they send. Okay, now follow me. What's happened is, is that we've redefined what apostles are because most of our apostles are not in apostleships. Most of our apostles are in pastorates. So what we've, what we've, what we've redefined apostles to mean people who plant churches. People who plant things that gather. 
And we go, well, that person must be apostle because they planted 20 churches. It doesn't matter if they planted 5,000 churches. If those churches do not, are not cultural transformers, they're not apostolic. I don't mean they're not valuable. Of course they're valuable. But here's a statistic that should, should wake us up. I just wrote a book called Heavy Rain that comes out in, in November. And I did some statistical studies on cities. And what I found is this. The cities that have the greatest Christian Sunday morning church attendance have the worst social statistics in our, in our country, with the exception of five cities. I don't remember what all of them are. Oklahoma City is one exception. What's that saying? Gathering people and transforming cities are not synonymous. In fact, here's what it actually says. The more people you gather on Sunday morning, the, the, the more likely you are to have a city that has terrible social statistics. It's what happens when you huddle, but you never play the game. You'll notice it says that the marshes... The swamps and marshes, verse 11, will not be made fresh. That word fresh is the word healed. They will not be healed, but they will be left for salt. Now, it's interesting. Think about the metaphor, the Ezekiel's river. And he says there's marshes. Where did the river, where did the water come from that's in the marshes? It came from the river. But why is it a marsh? Because it consumes, but it refuses to contribute. The water stayed in there too long. It has an inlet, but no outlet. And you know the theme song of the marsh? The way we were. You didn't get that. See, we have to redefine how we measure success. Remember I said when we step over the River Jordan, this is for people who were there yesterday, the real Christians... <laughs> when we step over the Jordan River, the former things that come to pass, one of the things that we're learning is we have to redefine success. What does success look like? Well, listen, if gathering people, if gathering people doesn't transform cities, if apostles send, okay, follow me, and you measure success by how big your church gets, but the goal of apostleships is to send your goals working against your mission. <laughs> so funny. And we have to think. You know, think. Isaiah said. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. You know how sheep go astray? They watch each other's butts and hope there's a shepherd up front. Well, Mildred, we must be going the right way because 99 sheep can't all be wrong.
I think we're in a new epic season. And, and, and I, what I see, and I was just sharing this with Bill. Let's see, how do I do this? You can say things in, in private you can't say in public. I noticed that because they, they get podcasted and people repeat them. And they don't sound so good when they come back to you the same way you said them. So, I'm learn- no, I'm not learning. I'm just, I'm just in a lot of pain. In denominationalism, in denominationalism, you go to seminary, you get a degree, therefore you're a pastor. I said ism. Okay? Everybody heard ism. Okay. Here's the problem. That's performance-based leadership. I performed... I performed to be the leader. See, there's a calling, a gifting, and an anointing on our life. Our calling gives us our identity, our gifting, our ability, and our anointing, our purpose. Here's the problem. If I, get, if I, if I become the leader because I'm the most gifted, then what happens is, is that built into the culture is this dynamic that anyone who's more gifted than me Get sabotaged because I know I got this place because I'm the most qualified. But if I got this place because I'm called, see, see, I'm dealing with the issue of training, equipping, deploying. See, because if in a in a gift-based leadership, if you got your position because you perform for it, then anyone who can outperform you is a threat. And see, what happens is, is that we end up with a pecking order. A pecking order was, the word was developed around the dynamic of watching chickens. Say a lot. And out of that, we got a hierarchy. See, I don't think we're supposed to have a hierarchy. I think we're supposed to have an hierarchy. We're heirs of Christ Jesus. So there are levels of honor. And Bill alluded to this the other day when he was talking about the gift of discernment. The most important, listen, I think the most valuable gift, and I I have to be careful because Paul said that earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you would prophesy. So I have to be careful because the Bible says that the most valuable gift is prophecy. So, but in the emphasis that we're in, I would say that the most valuable gift besides prophecy is the gift of discernment. Because God wants to develop a governmental structure where there is an hierarchy and there are levels, there are levels of honor. Remember Jesus said, Jesus, we didn't get invited to a round table. We got invited to a rectangular table. Where there are levels of honor. Remember Jesus said, if you take a seat that's too high for yourself, that means there are seats that are higher than other seats and there are people who deserve better seats than you do. And in apostleships, Paul said, I am called as an apostle, not by the will of man, but by God. 
I'm called. In other words, I am, I'm, I'm in charge not because I'm the most qualified. As a matter of fact, if I'm a great leader in a mature culture, I'm probably one of the least qualified people because if I'm really doing a good job, my sons and daughters have become mothers and fathers and they've out, actually outgrown me. But I'm not in charge because I'm the most qualified. I'm in charge because I'm called. God put me here. This is not a hierarchy with a pecking order. This is an hierarchy where the Lord puts in place the ones that He wants. And our job is to recognize the anointing that's on other people. So, Ephesians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter uh, uh, 5, verse 16 says, We no longer know each other after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And so the goal is that I can see on somebody... Jesus grew with favor with God, which is hard to understand, and with man. If Jesus grew in favor with God and man, then we must have to also. So the goal is is that when you have discernment, you can see how much favor somebody has with God. And why is this important? Because if we're going to be deployed, then we have to be in submission to, to the apostolic mission to get commissioned. Romans 10 says, how will they hear if there's no preacher? How will they preach if they're not? The word's apostled. A lot of people are going, but they're not being sent. And here's the struggle. When people hear this message, they think it's... Some, some leaders take it as permission to control people. And we're back to slavery again. And the church becomes a slave camp where one person thinks and everyone else does the work, does the work, does the work, and we call that a team. We call it teamwork. One person thinking, everyone else working. We have got a great team. It's called a monarchy. Because nobody gets to think. I don't know if you're hearing what I'm saying. So, <laughs> okay, I, wanna, I just want to give you three elements. How do you know what the structure should look like? Because as soon as I finish, the leaders go, hey, what's an apostolic structure look like? Well, it's developed around three things. Who's leading? Who are you leading? And what season are you leading them in? Who's leading? Who are you leading? And what season are you leading them in? Because the, the structure should be built, the government should be built around those three dynamics. Who's leading? Who are you? Not just you like, I'm the senior leader, so all things revolve around me. No, it's like, who's on your team? For instance, if you have 50 people on your team and you add, you add one more, so now you have 51, and you don't change the structure, then you'll only do what you could have done with 50. Now, you may do more of the same, but you won't do anything else because there is no structure to do what the 51st person has an anointing to do because there is no roads there. And here's the challenge. You know, um, it, this is just observation. Uh, I, see, I see people do stuff like this, like, 
Uh, in fact, Bill taught me this years ago. If, if the, let's say a, a, a guy pastors for 30 years, and let's say he retires or he goes home to be with the Lord or whatever, and usually what happens is whatever that guy was bad at, that's what the, that's what the board wants. To, the board wants someone, he, he wants to hire someone who's good at what that guy was bad at. So if the guy was really spontaneous and, you know, uh, and, and everything was exciting, but the bills never got paid and things never got done and the buildings fall around, well, they hire an administrator next. And we'll get us an administrator. <laughs> Tell you what, we're going to get our bills paid and this building's going to get fixed up. And what we end up with is a really awesome graveyard. But what, what, what I see happen is, is that if you, if you have been someplace for 30 years, you may have not have proactively built a government. You, like, you're supposed to build a government that covers your weaknesses and facilitates your strengths, empowers your strengths. Now, if you're smart, you do that proactively. You actually, like, think through it. Like, okay, what am I good at? What am I not good at? Uh, you know, and I'm talking about as a team, not me personally, but... Um, even as even as a person, like if I'm smart leader, I'm starting. I go, okay, what am I? What do I suck at? See, what what usually happens is we hire people like us. So we do us over and over again, really well, <laughs> right? But Romans 12 says, "Don't be conformed to this, uh, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." You may prove what the will of God is. You know that verse. The next verse says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think to think as to have sound judgment, for God has allotted each to measure of faith. And then the next verse says, since there's many members in the, on the body and they all don't have the same function, and he goes on to talk about many members. What's he saying? He's saying, if you think too highly, listen, if you're conformed, the difference between being conformed and transformed is this. If you're conformed, you'll think too highly of yourself. How do you know if you're thinking too highly of yourself? You look around and the only people you value are people who are like you. But if you're transformed, then you can take the other gifts and you value them just like you value you. You can take people who are different than you and invite them into your world. Are are you following me? So what I'm saying is is that you, you, you first assess who's with us, like who are our leaders. And what do they need? What do they need to facilitate their strength and cover their weakness? Now, I started to say this. What I see happen oftentimes, like if you take an apostle and, and let's say, let's say the, the guy pastored for 30 years. If you pastor someplace for 30 years, unless you have a board that's controlling everything, you may not proactively develop roads, structure government, that facilitates your strengths and covers your weaknesses. You may have not thought through it, but probably over time, you probably did build some sort of structure or you died to cover your weakness and facilitate your strength. Here's the problem. The next guy that comes in to take your place has different strengths and weaknesses unless you have a clone. If you don't change the government, that person can never be as successful as the first person because the first person's the structure was built proactively or reactively for them. So we get the next person in, and the next person can never do what the first person did, and they can't be as successful as the first person in what that person did because they're not that person. And secondly, there's no roads to the strengths they have. 
Are you following me? If you take certain people and let's say they're highly relational, like the Wimber, um, uh, I don't know if it's like this anymore, but the early days of, of, of the vineyard, um, the way they planted churches, my understanding is, the way they planted churches is they would send somebody to, um, to a, a, a place, they would pray for a season, and then they would start to gather some people and they would pray in a house. And when that house group got to be 50 people consistently, I think they had a rule like for six months, then they would rent a building. Well, how many of you know that the nature of a home group is that you have to be a relational person <laughs> to build a home group? Because people come and sit in front of you. They expect you to talk. If you're not a relational person, you're going to be 30 people forever. But on the other hand, if you take the same person who maybe is like, has this amazing ministry in, in, a, in a public setting, like they can do with a thousand, what some people can do with ten. Remember Moses' uh, um, his father-in-law, Jethro's uh, advice to him, you know, put leaders over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Some people can shepherd a thousand like other people shepherd ten. And you take certain people and you put them behind a pulpit and they become Superman because that structure facilitates their strengths and covers their weakness. What's their weakness? I don't, I don't do relationship very well. Like, I'm not the most interactive person you've ever seen on the planet. Well, what happens if I put a, a person that's an introvert, a quiet, introvert, shy person, and I put them in a highly relational structure? I'm exposing what they're not good at. Are you following me? Okay. <laughs> I think you're getting bored. And so what, I go places all the time, and like, I feel like um, the Lord has given me some sort of gift for structure. And I look around, and I go, these are amazing people. It's, I wonder why they're not turning their city upside down, because 12 guys did that. And most of the time what we do is hire more people. And we don't realize, actually, it's not the governors that are the problem in most places. It's the government. Like there are no roads to our destiny. And if they are, they're little rocky, they're little rocky walking trails. Take a creative person like a worship leader and give them an eight to five job. You want to kill somebody? Take creative people and put them in a structure and go, listen, you will get inspired between eight to five. I, I, you know, I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm not a songwriter, but I'm a writer. Anybody, any, any of you writers in here or songwriters? This, I know, happens to all of us. Like, I can sit down for three hours and have nothing happen. I mean, literally write, write 200 words. Bill knows what I'm talking about. I mean, it's like grueling and then the holy spirit can come on me <laughs> and i can be like whoa i was like i can't i'm not a very good type types anyway but i can't get it out fast enough like i'm writing one-liners and i don't even care if it's spelt right i just don't want to forget what i just heard because it ain't going to happen again maybe for a week or maybe for a month and i and if that happens to me I, i'm going to stay until it lifts and i i i have writ, i have wrote until the sun comes up in the morning because I don't get in this spot very often. If I'm, in a, if I'm in a job where I have to be at work at 8, 
And that's my and my job is writing, which that's you know that's not my main job, but you know that, that's what you can see what I'm getting. It's like it's like I have to have a structure that fits the creative people. Now it doesn't mean they have to be irresponsible. They never come to work. Well, I was writing all night. I don't know what to tell you. I haven't been to work for three weeks. It's like, uh, okay, that isn't going to work. How come you didn't lead worship this morning? I was with God. You know, it's like. Okay, we got to have some balance here. You understand. You're smart enough to realize that there's got to be boundaries. But I'm simply saying that I have to take into consideration the person's strength and their weakness and the season they're in. Okay, so we have Joshua leading in the wilderness. Joshua leading in the promised land. Same guy, same people, different season. How many of you think that he needed a different way of leading when he hit the promised land. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, how do I know what kind of government structure to develop? Who's leading? Who are you leading? What season are you leading them in? Who are you leading is very interesting. There's a whole world of pastors out there that think they're leading sinners. Now think about it. Whatever you misdiagnose, you'll mistreat. If you think you're leading sinners... Okay, now follow me. Okay, I'm the leader, and I think you're all sinners. If, if I think you're sinners, a sinner means that you're prone to evil. First of all, am I going to empower you? No. See, what's really funny is that people, leaders come to our conferences, to our training centers. This really does happen, and I'm sorry, it happens more often than I'd like to think. They come and they bring their people and their people learn to heal the sick. They learn to prophesy. They learn to cast out demons. And then six months later, they're writing me emails like, we, you know, we learned all that stuff, but our people aren't doing it. I'm like, your people aren't doing it because you've misdiagnosed who your people are. <laughs> See, you taught them powerful things, but you told them they're not powerful people. <laughs> you taught slaves how to act powerfully, but they're a royal priesthood. They're heirs to the throne, but you taught them that they're the people who shine the shoes of the people who are on the throne. And then you wonder why they don't act powerfully. So if you believe you're leading sinners, you will develop a structure. I'm not saying you will intentionally do it, but you will develop a structure that will actually control the people. Because you will think, even it might be subconscious, but you will think, my job is to get these people to heaven with the least amount of sins. But if you believe you're leading saints, that your people are inherently good, and of course there's always going to be wolves that come in, but how many you know we don't want to change the structure because we got a wolf? <laughs> See, part of, the part of the struggle is that we're, we're called to... Listen, this place is supposed to be a training, equipping, and deploying center. This place. This, this place is a, is a river. This place is an apostolic center. That's supposed to have a huge impact, first on the city and then on the world. In order to do that, you need a manufacturing department and an R&D department. Okay, you understand business? R&D, research and development. Think about, you know, the iPod. One of God's gifts to modern mankind. See, the goal of the manufacturing department at Apple has to be zero defects. 
has to be zero defects. Like, we don't want any defects in this iPod. We want everyone to work every time, every application, right? But if you superimpose that core value over the research and development department, you don't invent anything. In my opinion, most churches only have a manufacturing department. They superimpose the character core values over everything and then wonder why nothing happens. And then when it does happen, we make a rule for it. I'll make sure that'll never happen again. Oh, that's right. That will never happen again. And pretty soon you make a rule for this, you make a rule for that, you make a rule for this, you make a rule for that. And pretty soon you got a nice, clean tomb that you're hoping Jesus comes out of. And, you're, and you start praying for a visitation because you have no habitation. And the most popular song is, I'm desperate for you. Because that's what happens when fathers don't come home. And conferences become our life source. It's like, oh, somebody comes in who's not living in a tomb. They come and roll away the stone. Then we complain about how they did it. We had an earthquake when it happened, and it's like, that wasn't right. Do that enough, and we'll have another problem. Don't invite that person who told us the truth. Selah. So I think you're going through a huge transition. My time thing just changed. It gave me 24 hours. Oh, I guess that's a minute. I'm just kidding. That's just minutes. I looked at it wrong. It's my fault. So, our goal, this is, one, this is our personal goal. Our, our personal goal is that you wouldn't come, have to come to Bethel Church to experience revival. That when you landed in the airport, you would experience revival in the airport. You'd experience revival. You'd experience the kingdom in our school system. In, our economic, in other words, the goal is that the kingdom, what would it be like if actually the Holy Spirit fell on all flesh? And so we, we, started, we started actually, we, we call it strategies, spirit-led strategies. Get together and brainstorm with the mind of Christ. Like, how can we touch our city? Like, how can we be a benefit to our city? See, the problem is in denominationalism, the goal is to get people to agree with you. Even in evangelism, right? How do we evangelize? <laughs> so funny to me. Anyone here that wants to receive Jesus, pray this prayer. Can you imagine Jesus saying, Anyone who wants to follow me, pray this prayer. Raise your hand. Come forward. I'm not opposed to any of those things. Just remember they're performance-based. I mean, the church is a global orphanage full of bastards. We're teaching them family principles and wonder why they don't act like sons. How did they get in the kingdom? Through a one-night stand. Apostles are supposed to be fathers and... The church is supposed to be a family. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but we raise test tube children and wonder why they don't behave like sons. And so our, our goal is to actually love people. This is our new strategy. It's pretty deep. Our goal is to actually love people. Like, wouldn't it be awesome if you could actually love a homosexual without an agenda? See, see, in denominationalism, the only, see, the only, remember that we gather when we agree and we divide when we disagree. But it doesn't just affect the way we gather. It affects the way we interact with the world. Because the goal of being in relationship with anyone who doesn't know God is to get them to agree with me. So, if I have a relationship with a homosexual in denominationalism, I have to let my friends know I have an agenda. Talking to them. Don't worry. Talking to them. And, and, and we, think, we think the homosexual doesn't know. See, what happens when the church loses power is signs and wonders become something you can, you can nail to a stick and take to a gay parade. Signs that make you wonder. You know, people just get saved all over the place with those. Bringing you the kingdom, brother. It's on the sign. You got it, didn't you? I don't know what would happen if we just became like Daniel and actually loved Nebuchadnezzar. Like we just like, no, no I mean, this is really, seriously, like we just, we just actually loved him because we did. It's a secret. How come you're hanging out with that person? I love him. Why, well, you're a little funny? No, I mean, I actually do love him. I actually enjoy their company. It's a homosexual. No, I didn't say I liked their sin. I just said I loved him. Just said I love him. <laughs> I think most of the world sees us coming and it's like, here comes the car salesman. <laughs> I just wonder what would happen if we just became fathers to a city. And we just treated everyone like they were created in God's image. And we lived in a way that made everyone jealous for what we have. Like, we're so happy, they're like, what do you got there? And we live to be a benefit to our city. About, uh, I guess, eight or nine months ago, um, Bill and I um, had this idea that we were just like brainstorming, like, how can we actually benefit our city? And Jesus said, you can make friends with unrighteous mammon. Money. So we're like, why don't we start tithing to our city? So we went and saw our city manager. And um, we sat down with him and we said, hey, we'd like to start, uh, we give 10% of all of our income. We'd like to give 10% of that to our city. He's like, well, you can give to the Red Cross. You can give it. Like, we were thinking, like, we want to lay it at the apostles' feet. You know, he wouldn't have understood that, but the principle. And we go, no, 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 you don't understand. We want to give it to you and you do with it whatever you think needs to be done. I'm going to pay it every week, I mean every month. And we're also, in our conferences, a few times a year we're going to take offerings for our city. 
So we'd like to know where, where the, the greatest need is, and we'd like to take offerings, and we'll give those also. And uh, he was just kind of like, what do you want? <laughs> Who are you trying to get elected? But it's been really cool because we just started just building relationship with our city. Like We just started thinking, how can our church actually be a catalyst to our city's destiny? Wouldn't it be awesome if we weren't known for what we were against? Oh, we're coming to Christians to city council. They must be they're mad at Planned Parenthood or somebody else. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were actually there because we were for something? It's just a whole new concept. It's a whole new idea that we would love people and go to their drunken parties. I, I think that we're moving into a whole new dimension. And we're moving away from, hey, let's see if we can get someone to come to church. And we're just flowing out into the city, into every place. And people who get in the river get healed. But even the trees who refuse to get in the river are receiving supernatural benefit. So I want you to stand. I'm just going to pray for you right now. I really believe that church schools, church schools, are a sign of apostolic structure. I think it's I think it's part of the new government that we want to train our own sons and daughters and deploy them. And I think that the phenomena is like we 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 wrote curriculum two years ago and we have 360 or 350 um, schools, supernatural schools started around the world with our curriculum. And it's just like it's just growing like uh, exponentially. I, I think it's the I think the Lord is just breathing on the fact that we don't want to send our 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 people away necessarily. We want to, we want them trained and equipped in our apostolic mission, so that we can train and equip them and deploy them to fulfill the mission God's given us. I think it's a phenomena. I think it's I think it's a, a part of of this new apostolic era, if you will. And so I want to just pray for you right now that the Lord would just open up new dimensions of apostolic grace in your life. And uh, many of you are leaders. And I think as I'm talking, I'm like, I just had this sense that several of you are like, wow, we need a new structure. <laughs> well, you know, I know why Johnny's not succeeding. <laughs> I have them in Henry's structure. And, you know, I, and I, I just want to pray that the Lord would just give you wisdom. Uh, we need wisdom and discernment for, these, for this season that we're in. Because I think that God's church is the answer to this global crisis. I think this is the season for us not to prophesy the return of Jesus through you know, terrible signs and wonders, but this is the time for us to arise and shine in the midst of the darkness. And actually help our, our cities, our nations, actually see God come and solve their problems. 
And so, Holy Spirit, we just pray right now that you would just release your wisdom. Yeah, we need wisdom. We need, like the sons of Issachar, we need wisdom and understanding. We need to understand the times. We need to know what to do in the times. We need to understand government and structure. And Lord, we need true apostles to rise up among us. We need true prophets to rise up among We need the foundations to return to the church. And Father, we need to break off old paradigms that don't work anymore. And we need wisdom for how to actually deploy our people and how to become a covenant family. How to invite people into a family and not into a business. Lord, we just pray for that right now in Jesus' name. That, Lord, that we would see people not as they are, but as you see them. And that we would invite, that we would even create structures for our people to step into their destiny. Lord, we pray for that. That as we go back to our churches, that we begin to have incredible expectation for our people, that our faith would rise. Then we would say in our hearts, our people are a great people. They're the people of God. These are the greatest people who have ever walked the planet. And we would begin to create structures and highways and remove stones. Lord, highways, that we, freeways, highways, places where people can come and they can learn and grow, make mistakes. And Lord, it's, Lord that's not a big deal, Lord. We, just, we pray for that in Jesus' name, that we would be an empowering people. That people would begin to think and have creative ideas that they could learn in our environment. That we would create a culture that brings out the best in people. Lord, we just, we, we just pray for that. Lord, we pray for our cities. That our cities would be impacted by the, the love and grace and power of God. That, that, the, that we would be, that we learn how to, to customize without compromise. That we'd learn how to touch people. We'd be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. Lord, we, we just pray for that in Jesus' name. That we would see the greatest revival in human history. That you'd actually pour your Spirit upon all flesh. Thank you, Lord. I, I want to pray for one more thing. I actually wanted, I was supposed to do this at the beginning. So, um, this is not related at all. So, shoot, change channels for just a minute. If you're being tormented at night... I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to pray for that. It's going to end right now. There's so many people being I've been having call after call after email after email. And I'm like, I don't know what this is, but it needs to stop. I went through it for... Actually, I've gone through it several times. I went through it about three years ago. It's just really bad. If you're being tormented... In fact, it doesn't even have to be at night. But if you're being tormented at all, I want you to raise your hand. When I, maybe when I was sharing about that CD about torment, you realize, hey, those thoughts I'm having, they're not mine. Raise your hand right now. Man, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's, this is wrong. I had a dream the other night. Just leave your hand up for a minute. I had a dream. Uh, this is uh, about probably a month ago. I had a dream, and in the dream, I was, I was being really, the dream was horrible, really horrible. And it and I went on for, it seemed like a long time. And I woke up out of a dead sleep, and I don't think this has happened to me. Maybe it's happened one other time in 30 years. I woke up out of a dead sleep, and I, and I, and I yelled. Kathy jumped up. I yelled, this stuff stops now. This stuff stops, and I was completely awake. I said, this crap stops now. This harassment stops today. 
And Kathy jumped up out of bed. She said, are you okay? I said, yes, I'm okay. And this stuff stops now. This spirit stops harassing my family, stops messing with my grandkids, stops messing with my children, and it stops right now. I don't think that's happened. Maybe 30 years ago, I can remember one other time. And Kathy just woke up and, and, you know, slid up against the headboard with me and she grabbed my hand and we started, I, we, we weren't praying. And this isn't our custom either, I can tell you this. We started warring together. We started warring. And we said, this stuff stops now in our family. This crap will stop now. This harassment is to be done in our family. And, we, and we've been, frankly, that, that thing is still continuing. It's beginning to lose momentum in my, fam- uh, my personal family. But we've been praying like that every night. If this stops now. This thing is, I am no longer putting up with this. I am the head of my family. I am the patriarch in my home. And this crap stops here. And so I want to pray that for you right now. That this thing stops in your life right now in Jesus' name. This tormenting spirit that's tormenting your mind, maybe your emotions, maybe it's even, sometimes it's in the felt level, it's even below the, 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 the thought. It doesn't even come as a thought, but some of it comes as feelings that you can't even put thoughts to. It stops now. This thing breaks now over you. It breaks now over the body of Christ, especially over leaders that are being tormented. There's so many leaders being tormented right now. We're on the the verge of a breakthrough, the enemy does not want us to come and rebuild these walls. And Lord, we just pray right now that every leader in any way who's being tormented, uh, I, I, I hear the word fatigue, that's, that's, that's struggling with fatigue. I mean, it's beyond just being, being tired physically. It's just, it feels like you're always exhausted. You can sleep 12 hours a day for the next month and you'd still wake up completely exhausted. That thing is a spirit of fainting. Isaiah 61, I'm going to give you a mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. And I'm telling you, I know this well. There is a spirit of fainting. And Lord, I break that spirit of fatigue, that thing that, that can never be satisfied. It, it, uh, it, uh, vitamins don't take care of it. Sleep doesn't take care of it. Isolation doesn't take care of it. It's a spirit of fainting. And Lord, we break that off of our people right now. And Lord, we pray for supernatural strength, supernatural wisdom. And Lord, we pray for the peace of God. Last night I assigned an angel over my son's bed. I'm like, this crap stops. I told him over the phone. This stops. And I said, Holy Spirit, I just pray right now that you would sign an angel, protect his sleep. Because it says the sleep of the righteous is peace. And this stops today. And Lord, we just, we just apostolic assignments. Angel assistance. Lord, we need angel assistance right now. Lord, we pray that for every single person who has their hand up. Lord, we need more help. We need more protection over our people, over your leaders. You know how to protect your leaders, God. Lord, we just release that right now over them. Insomnia. Put your hands down. How many of you have a problem with insomnia? You're not sleeping at all. Yep. Gosh, look at this. Ridiculous. Lord, we just break that insomnia over people right now. That they would sleep all night. Tonight, they would sleep all night. The sleep of the righteous is peace. That you would sleep all night. And from now on, that you would no longer have that I stay awake all night thing. That is gone in your life, in Jesus' name. From this moment on. Thank you, Lord. One more thing. Depression. Depression. You're dealing with depression. Just raise your hand. Come on, we're among friends. I break the power of depression over you. I break the power of depression. Joy for mourning. 
joy for mourning. I pray for joy to overtake you, run you down, chase you down. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Lord, we release that over every person that's dealing with depression or discouragement. In Jesus' name, that thing is a demon that needs to come off your life. Anybody that has any kind of chemical imbalance, Lord, we just pray right now that you would do a supernatural work in their chemistry and that you would heal their bodies. Heal their minds in Jesus' name. David said it this way, the Lord restores my soul. Lord, I pray for the soul of people to be restored. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Bless you guys. You're amazing. Go ahead. You, isn't Clarence awesome? He's just wonderful.